0: Chapter 3, Homeless and Full of Peace and Hope. This chapter is based on Luke chapter 3. Jeanette is one of my absolute favorite people on the planet. She is amazing. Every time I see her, she encourages me more than most anyone I've ever known. When I think of what it means to be a Christian who models a life of peace and hope, Jeanette is the first person who pops into my mind. She is compassionate, generous, full of joy. Wise and homeless. Yep, she's homeless. She's not the kind of homeless most people picture when they think of a homeless person. The people you see on the streets with signs are only part of the picture of homelessness in America. Many people are like Jeanette, caught in a cycle of poverty that is really hard to get out of. Jeanette stays with friends and in shelters. She works whenever she can find something to do. But she has trouble maintaining a job because years of drug abuse has left its toll on her memory and her body and her work history. Honestly, she has no concept of saving any money for the future. When she gets money, it's for spending and giving away. Jeanette doesn't ask for handouts. If you give her something, she will find someone to share it with. Whenever I saw her at the shelter where I used to volunteer, she would always give me way more than I could ever give her. She was thrilled with being a Christian and how much Jesus changed her life. So she spent most of her days praying for people and looking for ways to encourage them. As I was having meltdowns about leaving my teaching career, she was praying for me to find my way. She didn't always know where her next meals were coming from, but she'd tell me not to worry. She had more peace than me because she knew her peace wasn't based on something as unreliable as a job. The hope she has for the world is infectious. When she reads her Bible, she writes down Bible verses over and over on pieces of paper and walks around looking for people to share them with. How absolutely amazing is that? I couldn't help but think of her story as I read Luke 3 and the lessons John the Baptist preached. He was homeless too, or more accurately, his home was in the woods. It's so crazy to think about the story of John the Baptist. He was a bold man who had a huge following. Though he was following God faithfully, his life was pretty tough. He preached in the wilderness and ate wild locust and honey. Many people believe he was used to living on his own because his parents, remember Zachariah and Elizabeth, they probably died when he was very young. In Roman-occupied Israel, most Jews were poor, so John's relatives couldn't have provided for him. He knew how to survive in the wilderness, so that's where he set up camp to preach. This arrangement worked out really well, since the Romans were extremely strict about gatherings, which might lead to riots. The Jews were already known for not being cooperative with Roman leaders, so it was safer for John to camp out in the woods, away from civilization, and yell at religious people about how they needed to change their heart and get right with God. It's hard for me to imagine this approach working, Because when I think of yelling preachers, I think of obnoxious religious people cramming their opinion down other people's throats. Turns out, John was yelling at those people. I love to think about Luke's Roman readers reacting to John's sermons. They had grown up around Jewish people. They were used to Jews thinking they were unclean and refusing to associate with them lest they become unclean also. Imagine how they felt when they read about John calling those people out. Consider Luke chapter 3 verses 7 through 9. John said to the Jewish crowds coming up to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father." For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So, what's up with calling people a brood of vipers? Well, that might not seem like a big insult to you, but it was a major insult back in the ancient day. It was like the queen mother of insults with an F-bomb attached. The Roman dudes reading this were like, damn, and somebody yelled, oh, no, he didn't, or whatever ancient Romans did when somebody just got burned. Vipers were considered the vilest creatures on earth to ancient people. They believed when vipers were born, they ate their mothers. I don't know why they believed this. I'm guessing no one really wanted to get close enough to intensely study baby vipers. But anyway, the viper comment was a terrible insult, like saying you were the worst kind of double-crossing backstabbing backstabber. It was also a fitting picture for what John's religious audience was doing. God had given them commandments to follow in order to have a relationship with him. He promised to protect them and provide for them if they would follow him. God would make them a great nation that would bless all other nations. Instead of being grateful and obedient, they tried to use God's laws to manipulate God and to hurt the people they were supposed to bless. The Jewish religious leaders thought they were special and blessed by God just because of their birth. This is what John the Baptist is referring to when he said, Do not even begin to think that you can justify yourself by saying that you have Abraham as your father. He basically said, Jeez, people! this is God we're talking about. He can make descendants of Abraham out of these rocks if he wanted to. You can't possibly think all it takes for you to be in God's kingdom is to be born in the right family. You have to follow him. Then John used a word which has really been ruined by religious people. Repent. When I hear someone talking about repentance, I immediately assume they are judgmental. It makes me think of this obnoxious preacher on my college campus who called me a whore for wearing a miniskirt. Unfortunately, when religious people these days use the word repent, they are most often condemning other people because of a behavior they disagree with. However, the ancient Greek word which has been translated repent was about a much deeper change than just behaviors. The word they used, metanoia. Is more like our modern word mind shift. It was actually used in contrast to only changing your behaviors or changing so you could get a better outcome. Metanoia was about a complete overhaul in how you think. So when John said repent, he wasn't simply saying, here's a list of bad behaviors you need to quit doing. He was saying, your abusive behaviors show that you need to change your whole way of thinking about God. It's crazy, but John's bold approach actually worked. The people knew they were messed up, so they said, what should we do? In Luke 3.11, John replied, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same, which kind of seems like a Yoda-ish answer. I mean, two shirts aren't a lot of shirts, John. How are we supposed to live that out in America? John was issuing a call to extreme generosity. This isn't another formula to measure if we are in or not. It's a check for our heart. Are we willing to be so generous with others that we might even give if we aren't completely sure we will be able to make it without what we gave away? John's call to extreme generosity was a glaring contrast to what religious leaders of the day were professing. They lived in luxury and favor with the Roman government. They believed their lives of ease proved they were blessed by God. Meanwhile, most of the working class people were struggling. They had been conquered by Rome and lost much of their land. They also had to pay heavy taxes to maintain the empire. In addition, they gave offerings to support the priest. The priest did not respect the common people for their sacrifices or hardship. Instead, they judged them harshly. I believe John was proclaiming that this life is not about how much stuff we can get, but about how much we can help others. Two shirts aren't a lot of shirts, especially back in the day when you had to make them by hand. Giving from your excess doesn't require much. And the priests weren't even doing that. Giving when you have very little reflects the heart of God for all humanity. It's a gracious, loving act which elevates the person with less. Because of John's preaching, something crazy happened. Verse 12 says, Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Did you catch that? Is your mind blown? (laughs) Probably not but it would be if you were living back in the ancient day and you heard about tax collectors being baptized by a Jewish prophet. See, the Jews believed they were God's chosen people and God was going to set up an earthly kingdom. This was true, but they were wrong about how God's kingdom was going to work. All they could imagine was a political kingdom with them at the top ruling over the rest of the world. So, when they were conquered by Rome, they decided Rome was the enemy of God and God's plan. Tax collectors were therefore seen as Jewish people who made money by collecting money for the enemy of God. Even worse, they took more than was required and kept the extra for themselves. Tax collectors were such hated traitors that when religious leaders of the day wanted to make a point about something being really, really obnoxiously bad, They just said he was as bad as a tax collector. And you know who backed up tax collectors? Soldiers. Think of all you know about Roman soldiers. They were tough guys who did a lot of messed up stuff. I mean, these dudes were brutal. Plus, they were the muscle behind the Roman Empire, God's supposed enemy. Think about how people viewed tax collectors and soldiers. Then consider the rest of this scene from Luke chapter 3. Some tax collectors got baptized and asked John, So what should we do? I mean, besides just giving away our shirts and food. John replied to them in verses 13 and 14. Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Wait, what? Don't you mean stop siding with the enemy and find a new job? Religious people in comfortable lives of ease don't like to admit this, but sometimes life sticks you in difficult situations with no way out. John didn't tell the soldiers to desert their post. They'd have gotten killed. He told them to be as fair as possible in their duties. And tax collectors? They're like the mafia for Rome. They were hated more than soldiers, but John didn't tell them anything except... Be fair in collecting money from people. Whatever you are struggling with in your life, whatever injustices you see around you, this little nugget of truth should calm your soul. God doesn't expect you to right all of the wrong systems in the world, even the ones in which you might currently be trapped. He expects you to follow him to the best of your ability as you navigate this broken world. And just to be crystal clear, do not think for a second this means you have to stay in a situation where you are being abused. That is not what I'm saying at all. But when you don't know the way out, that doesn't mean God has abandoned you. Follow him as closely as you know how, and he will honor your heart and show you the next steps. Psalms 34, 18 declares that God is near to the brokenhearted. He sees your struggles. They matter to him. This world is a broken, heart-filled mess. But there is beauty in every day. There is hope. God knows you can't change all of your circumstances. He sees your heart. God longs to walk through this broken, messy world with you. My friend Jeanette showed me this. She will never look like the picture of Christianity put before us in popular media, but her handwritten Bible verses inspired me more than a thousand sermons. She gives to everyone she comes in contact with, and she blesses everyone who knows her. She may be homeless still, but she is a strong warrior in God's kingdom. She is full of peace, and she shares hope everywhere she goes. My disclaimer. Throughout this book, I completely rag on religion, which I'm sure is completely confusing since, um, aren't you religious, Cindy? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. Truthfully, I think we all are, and it isn't always all bad. But when religion is bad, it is insidiously awful and damaging like nothing else. Religious shaming hurts people at the very core of who they are. And religious hatred unites people to do some of the worst atrocities ever committed against humanity. In my years of working with survivors, I've grown to absolutely hate how people use religion to shame the people who God wants us to embrace and encourage. For the sake of clarity, in this book, when I refer to religion, I mean any system of beliefs, values, or practices which we believe somehow make us more worthy than other people. I'm aware that this definition creates a huge mess for how we look at the world. It's easy to identify religions like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And it's easy to look at world history and identify where these religions have gotten ugly. It's hard to recognize the less defined, less traditional religions people are currently clinging to. We live in a time where people are largely rejecting traditional religions for a lot of good reasons. However, they aren't replacing traditional religions with anything better. Instead, they are just drawing different dividing lines, and we are all hating each other as much, if not more than ever. One of the main messages of the book of Luke is about how Jesus taught a different way. Each story shows how strict religious adherence does not give us what we are all seeking. Strict religious adherence all by itself does not produce good things in us. The only way religion can help us is if it points to our need for God. My point is that all of us are religious to some degree. Christians like to say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. I would say it's supposed to be a relationship. However, the American versions of Christianity are mostly religion. Often these religions can show us our need for a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes these religions can actually get in the way of our relationship with Jesus. In my own life, I spent years and years trying to be good enough for God and trying to prove myself through serving Him. I failed over and over. I wrestled with depression and anxiety all the time because I was living with constant shame over mistakes I had made. God was there the whole time loving me and wanting to walk through all the hurt and struggles of my life with me. But my foolish pride wanted to do it on my own. My pride kept me from seeing God when he was right there longing to help me. The following story in Luke presents a picture of how our religious practices and foolish pride can keep us from recognizing Jesus when he is right there with us. In Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 44, after Jesus's temptation in the desert, he returned to a region called Galilee. He went around preaching in the local synagogues. He was teaching the people and they were all super impressed with what he said. Jesus was wowing the crowds with his understanding of scriptures and and pointing out the hypocrisy of their current practices. Well, Jesus was wowing everyone except the people in his hometown. When he visited his hometown in Nazareth, he got a different reception. In Nazareth, Jesus went into the local synagogue on a Sabbath day and began to teach the people. In those days, different rabbis would stand up and read the scripture, and then the leaders would talk about it. Following this tradition, Jesus stood up and read the following excerpt from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus read a prophecy they were all familiar with and said, Guys, this is happening. I'm the one you've been waiting for. In verse 22, Luke tells us that their reactions were mixed. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But at the same time, they were saying, Isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus had grown up in their hometown. He did chores just like them. How could he be anything special? They all recognized what he said was amazing and gracious, but they were also like, hold up, how can you be the Messiah? You're just a regular dude. Then, oh my goodness, I crack up every time I read Jesus' response to them as they questioned him. He knew their hearts. He knew that they didn't want to know him or God's plan. They only wanted him for what he could do for them. Jesus totally called them out. In Luke 4:23 through 27, he said, "Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you," he continued. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Basically, Jesus said, all y'all are going to tell me I need to prove myself to you, but I have no need to. I don't do miracles to gain power in this world. I do miracles to bless people who call on me. Consider these stories that y'all are all familiar with. The famous prophet Elijah miraculously provided food for a widow during a severe famine. There were many widows in Israel who were not seeking God. So Elijah went to a woman who you would consider an unredeemable pagan. Then Jesus continued, And Elisha, another of your favorite prophets, remember him? Well, he also healed a foreigner, another person you would consider unredeemable. Religious people just like you wouldn't listen to Elisha. You honor Elisha as being from God But you are just like the religious people who wouldn't listen to him. This was a total mic drop moment. Everyone there understood what Jesus was implying. Today we'd all be going, oh no, he didn't. He just called the whole crowd out for missing the point of God's plan. It was never supposed to be a religious system for just one race to rule over the world. The crowd totally felt a burn from Jesus' insult, Luke says they were furious. Jesus had accused them of not knowing God at all, and in perhaps the most ironic thing ever to happen on planet Earth, this crowd drove Jesus out of town and tried to throw him off of a cliff. It's kind of like they were saying, "We'll show this guy how much we love and follow God. Let's kill him." They're very sad, and if you're twisted, comical. Irony in this story is that Jesus was the Messiah they had been reading about their whole lives. What he told them about themselves and their ancestors was absolutely true. No one even tried to say it wasn't. They just wanted to get rid of him for saying it. They wanted the Messiah to give them power over others, not confront the problems of their hearts. It's interesting to note that when Jews spoke of peace, they were referring to living in harmony with God and His good plan for the world. They greeted each other and parted with the word Shalom, which we translate as peace, but it is much more. Shalom refers to seeking to live in harmony with God's good desires for this world. It was a constant reminder of the kingdom Jesus was bringing for the whole world, Though they said shalom, they wanted what we all want—lives of ease, power, comfort, control, and satisfaction with who we are. Their extreme response is a picture of how much we don't like seeing the ugliness in our own hearts. None of us like confronting how our religion may be blinding us to actually knowing God. None of us want to confront who we really are deep in our souls None of us want to deal with the brokenness within us. The most amazing thing about Jesus is that he loves us way too much to not push us to deal with the conflicts deep in our soul. He wants us to have inner shalom peace with him. Therefore, he wasn't just confronting the people in his hometown to be a giant jerk and get a rise out of some religious people. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'd still think he was cool if he did. He wanted them to see that even though they were good at being religious, they were missing the point. They were missing walking in peace with God. Even after all of these years of seeing God work in my life, I still don't immediately like confronting the issues deep in my soul. I still don't like seeing my own hypocrisy and bitterness. I can totally relate to the wanting to throw someone off of a cliff thing, I mean, I like to believe it would be a child abuser and not Jesus, but I totally understand frustration ever being confronted with what I'm really like. However, this is also the most amazing part about following Jesus. I am completely loved and adored by God. As I confront those parts of me, which I wish would stay hidden, I get to change them. I get to continually grow and be better. I get to have a mind shift as I walk in shalom with Jesus. I get to share his peace with the world. I don't have to live in shame, hypocritically hiding behind religious rules, which do nothing but separate me from others. I get to share this peace with the world the way my friend Jeanette does. Jesus will show you the truth about who. Jesus will show you the truth about who you really are as he walks with you and helps you become better. And yeah, as you cling to whatever religious belief makes you feel safe and in control, seeing who you really are might make you kind of want to throw him off a cliff sometimes. Thankfully, he's been there before. He'll love you anyway. And how freaking awesome is that?